0: let's tell this morning's sermon is Jesus's or Jesus Christ's compassion for sinners. Jesus Christ's compassion for sinners. On Sunday mornings we're working our way through loose gospel verse by verse, and we find ourselves in chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? Luke thirteen, thirty-one through thirty-five. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him to Jesus. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much for these verses. I was moved by Christ's compassion in them for such sinful people. I pray, Lord, that... Some of the beauty or all of the beauty that you've shown me in these verses, or I suppose even more beauty than you've shown me in these verses, would be revealed to your people this morning. I think this is such a um, tremendous window into the compassionate heart of our Savior, of Christ himself, uh, to see him respond to these people the way that he did despite all their sin and wickedness against him and his messengers. And I pray, Lord, that uh, your people this morning would be able to see that beauty, would really give each of us a a window into the heart of Christ. I was blessed to have had the week to reflect on these verses, and uh, I'm almost saddened that your people will only have, uh, you know, 45 to 50 minutes or however long it is that I preach to really meditate on these verses. And So I pray they could be planted in each person's heart, Lord, because I'm so thankful for the window we have into Christ's compassion and want it to be passed along to your people to see that themselves, Lord, so we can grow in our love and thankfulness for your Son and what he's done for us. And so I pray that would take place this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Amen. So, along with looking at commentaries on verses, I'll often try to listen to a few sermons on the verses. Along with looking at the commentaries on the verses I'll be preaching on, I'll also try to listen to a few sermons on those uh, verses pretty often. And any guesses how many sermons John MacArthur had on these five verses? Someone say five? Six. Six. That's more than one sermon per verse, and you guys think I'm going slow. <laughs> I am doing my best, and I will get through these verses in two sermons, I suspect. And I feel like that was not easy because there's so much about the compassionate heart of Christ towards sinners that I feel like I would be shortchanging you to try to pack these verses into one sermon. And apparently John MacArthur thought he would be shortchanging his congregation to try to pack these verses into five sermons. So I think we generally view people one-dimensionally. And here's what I mean by that. We sort of think of people and we say, well, he's, he's friendly, or uh, you know, she's introverted, or he's hard to get to know, or she's extroverted, or, or he's funny, or he's serious. And we tend to label people or view them that way and i think christ uh, absolutely prevents us from viewing him one dimensionally it's almost as though right when we're able to come up with a, a label or a description for him we end up encountering verses that just sort of uh, flip our view on its head and what i mean by that is if you look at the previous verses that we concluded last week how did jesus look when he said that there would be people who would come to the door The door would be shut in their face. They would be locked out or they would be cast into hell for eternity where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How would you label or view Christ based on those verses as the one who shuts the door and as the one who casts people into hell? Go ahead, you can... Yeah, severe, harsh. This morning, we read some verses and Jesus compares himself of all things to what a chicken you almost cringe a little bit when you say it a hen that is going to bring her chicks under her wings so now how does jesus look huh incredibly compassionate you thought you had jesus nailed down after last sunday sermon didn't you it reminds me of Romans eleven twenty two, where it says that we must consider what or note the goodness and the severity of God we see both of those we're prevented from viewing Jesus one dimensionally we're prevented from thinking that he's too severe but we must appreciate that he's severe but we're also prevented from thinking that he's um, you know entirely gracious or merciful and forgiving without an amount of judgment or severity Or justice accompanying him as we go through the verses we definitely get to see these multiple multiple dimensions of christ which i'm thankful for it gives us uh, an ability uh, an opportunity to grow in our knowledge and uh, faith and love of christ with that in mind let's get into this morning's verses jesus is busy with his ministry imagine that he's moving around and then someone comes to him uh, pharisees religious leaders of all people and they tell him about this death threat that's uh, been made against him so look in verse 31 at that very hour some pharisees came and they said to christ get away from here for herod wants to kill you so we can see right here that not all of the pharisees were against jesus who's probably the most well-known pharisee that was interested in christ and did not oppose him yes nicodemus there were some sympathetic ones like nicodemus and like these pharisees who seemed to want to protect jesus from herod there are lots of herods in the Gospels it can be hard to keep them straight this is Herod Antipas the king of Judea he's the same one who killed Jesus's cousin John the Baptist which lets Jesus know when he when, he hear, when Jesus hears this threat knowing that this is the Herod who had murdered his cousin John what does this reveal to Jesus it is a serious threat this is a man who is not above murdering people He does end up playing a part in Jesus' death later in the Gospels. This Herod does. Jesus knows Herod's capable of murder, but still, despite that, look how he responds in verse 32. He said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. So, not really the response that you would expect to see from someone who's afraid of dying, right? Because Jesus was not jesus was going to continue his mission he knew that there was nobody who could stop him not even herod and what's interesting to me is apparently jesus wanted herod to know that because what could jesus have sort of quietly done just continued his ministry not necessarily uh, you know he could have just quietly disregarded the counsel that was given went on his way but instead he wanted Herod to know that he was not afraid of him and that he couldn't stop him and so he tells these messengers to go back to herod and to deliver that message to him when jesus says that he's going to finish his course on the third day this isn't to say that he's on this three-day journey and he's three days from finishing it he's talking about his resurrection from the dead on the third day so really it's as though jesus said this i am going to continue what i'm doing I'm going to go where I need to go. I'm going to accomplish what I need to accomplish until the third day when I am resurrected. I will do everything that needs to take place before that, including going to the cross, being crucified, dying, being buried, and resurrected as nobody is going to stop me from any of that. Nobody's going to stop me from finishing all that the Father has before me. So Jesus was not afraid of any danger, he knew that he was following this divine timeline he knew that there was no threat to him being able to uh, divine timeline that the father had established for him and he knew that nobody posed any threat to that not even herod antipas who happened to be one of the most powerful people uh, in in the known world in christ's day now i want to ask you a question this should be pretty easy okay who crucified christ i've got a couple answers i've got pilate i've got jews What else? Only two answers? Okay. I mean, we can start saying ourselves, right? It's our sins that put Christ on the cross. Isaiah 53 10 says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you, referring to the Father, make his soul an offering for sin. Who offered Christ? Who sacrificed him? God the Father did. And this verse, it's going to great lengths to reveal that, or it's going to great lengths to reveal who was really in charge when Jesus hung on that cross. The Lord bruised him. The Lord put him to grief. The Lord made his soul an offering for sin. This verse is saying what I would say uh, would be the exact opposite of what we would expect. You would not expect to read that it pleased the Lord to put him to grief. You would expect to read it grieved the Lord to put him to grief, or it pained the Lord to bruise him, or it broke the Father's heart to have to do this to his son and so how could it please him or why would it please him it pleased him because of what it accomplished and what did it accomplish it accomplished your forgiveness it accomplished your redemption it accomplished my salvation for me if the father punished his son he wouldn't have to punish me if he punished his son he would not have to punish you if the father punished his son, then we could become his sons and daughters. Our sins made us enemies of God. Romans five ten. We were enemies of God. Colossians 1.21. You who were once alienated and enemies by wicked works. Ephesians two three. We were by nature children of wrath. Scripture is abundantly clear that we were separated from God his wrath hung on us because of our sins we were his enemies he had this hostility toward us the only way that Jesus could save us is if he became God's enemy he had to become the object of God's wrath God had to treat his son like his enemy so he could treat us as his sons and daughters so not only and I mention that because does that put into focus how little threat herod or anyone else really was to jesus when god the father had such sovereignty over his life acts 427 it's an interesting verse describing everyone's involvement with christ's crucifixion you actually could you did mention some of the individuals in this verse when i asked earlier who crucified christ listen to this acts 427 truly against your holy servant jesus whom you anointed both herod and pontius pilate with the gentiles and the people of israel or the jews were gathered together see you've got herod you've got pilate you got the jews you got the gentiles you basically got what you've got everyone gathered together to see christ crucified but then listen to what it says they were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done so no matter how things looked from an earthly perspective as though man these evil wicked people were getting the upper hand it was all unfolding according to god's plan luke 22:22 22, 22, truly the son of man goes as it has been determined determined by whom not not by pilate not by herod not by the jews but determined by god the father acts 2:23 jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of god revelation thirteen eight. it even when was jesus crucified here's another easy question for you okay when was jesus crucified it actually says he was crucified before the foundation of the world well how could it say that this is what's known as the prophetic perfect and the idea is that when god has decided something it's so certain that it's going to come to pass it's as though what It already has passed. It can be written prophetically, but presently or perfectly because if God says it's going to happen, it's that determined that you might as well just assume it has happened. So Jesus knew he wasn't going to die until his father sacrificed him. He knew that he was on this course that was set by God. And this is what's really beautiful or interesting, or I hope can be the encouragement to you that it was to me this week. The same is true of you in your life. And this brings us to Lesson 1. God has a course for our lives. God has a course for our lives. Just as the Father had a plan for Christ, He has a plan for us. Listen to these verses so you don't think that that's my opinion. So you recognize just how much of a theme this is that god directs our steps or our path for us psalm 37 23 the steps of a man are established by the lord when he delights in his way proverbs sixteen, nine: the heart of man plans his way but what yeah the lord establishes his steps proverbs 20 verse 24 a man's steps are from the lord how then can man understand his way you're ever confused about how your life is going it's because you're not really living it right you're not really in charge. Then this next verse is interesting. The prophet Jeremiah actually points out that God directs man's steps by pointing out that man does not direct his own steps because the idea is if man is not directing his steps then who's directing his steps? Jeremiah 10:23, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. That it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. If we're not directing our own steps, then who's directing them? Ephesians 2:10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which what? God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Have you ever considered that before? Every single good work you have ever done, you only did it because what? God just put it before you for you to perform it for you to walk in it he laid it out for you the longer I'm a Christian the easier it is to see how God directs our steps and writes our stories for us we can't always see it at the time but often uh, we look back and it comes into focus we see how God opened some doors for us and how he closed others for us we see how there were certain things we wanted that maybe we did God did allow us to have and then other things we wanted that God didn't allow us to have and then we see there's other things that we didn't want that God did cause us to have or he did bring into our lives often we can look back and see how, how it would not have been good for us to have received what we wanted at that time and other times we can look back and see how there were things that we didn't want that did end up being very good for us or for others the ways that God according to Romans 8 28 worked them out for good the other day I was walking and talking with one of my children, and, I was, and he was sharing with me about some temptation that he had faced that had been kind of introduced in his life, not necessarily because he'd been looking for it, but because he would found himself in some circumstances, and then this was just kind of thrown into his face. And I shared with him that no matter how hard I could try to protect him or my other children, they're still going to be exposed to countless temptations and an unsettling amount to be candid with you as a father to to recognize that your children are in this world where they're just bombarded with so much wickedness even even wickedness that we didn't have to uh, experience or witness when we were their age and uh, ter- terribly unsettling and so i told the son i said it's true um you, you're gonna have to decide for yourself whether you want to follow the lord i i can't do this for you i can't uh, point. i can say this is the direction to go but you're the one that has to choose those steps you're the one who's going to have to choose and, and by, by god's grace fortunately it seemed in this situation he'd chosen well but i said other times every other the other situations you'll face countless ones you're going to have to choose whether to follow the lord or whether to follow the world and it's true that we must choose to follow the lord but what else is also true he's choosing this path for us to follow now, it's very difficult to determine how these two truths work together, but they do. You feel as though you're living your life, but at the same time, you basically feel like you're discovering the life that God has for you, right? Paul, John MacArthur did this really funny thing one time when he said, who lives your life? Because what did Paul say? It is no longer I who live, but, but then you're like, I don't really want to attribute all of my actions to Christ because some of them are sinful, Right? So the moment you start to say, well, I live my life, well, then you say, but but Paul said that Christ lives in us, and you recognize this, this tension there. The paths of our lives, they're not so much ones that we choose for ourselves. They're ones that we discover as we try to live our lives, surrendered to Christ and submitted to him. And I think most of us, especially those of you who have been walking with the Lord for a long time, look back, and you recognize how God's written your story for you, right? You recognize that this is the path that he put you on. It might not necessarily have been what you chose, but this is, this is the course. And so in that sense, we see a real similarity with the sovereignty that Christ experienced in his life, that there is this path that God has chosen for us. Now, before we read the following verses, I want to let you know that I'm going to go to pretty considerable lengths. Believe it or not, I did remove quite a few verses, so I didn't go to the lengths that I could have. But I'm going to go to considerable lengths to help you appreciate the wickedness of the Jews and toward the end of the sermon hopefully it will become clear why i wanted to do this so just bear with me to that point look at verse 33. jesus says nevertheless i must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from jerusalem this was a criticism that was probably being said with an amount of sanctified sarcasm because of course there were prophets who died where out many that died in Jerusalem but there had been some prophets who had died outside Jerusalem but the Jews had been responsible enough for the slaughter of the prophets that Christ could blame the city of Jerusalem and by blaming the city of Jerusalem or the capital of the Jews it's as though he's blaming the Jews themselves for the murder of all of the Old Testament prophets saying basically there's no prophet that can escape Jerusalem because the Jews are so murderous they're going to execute all of them. Briefly look at two chapters to the left at 11:47, Luke 11:47. We'll go through some verses quickly so they kind of wash over you and you catch this theme. Luke 11:47. Jesus is speaking to the Jews and in these few verses notice the number of times that he accuses them of murdering the prophets luke eleven forty seven. 47 woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed verse 48 you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them killed the prophets and you build their tombs twice jesus said they build their tombs and he meant that they continue the job of the jews in jesus day continue the job of murdering the prophets that their ancestors had begun in the old testament verse 49 therefore also the wisdom of god another name for christ who is the wisdom of god said i will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill and persecute so now the jews are accused of not just murdering the prophets but also murdering whom the apostles as well and this so they kill the jews or excuse me the jews kill the prophets in the old testament they kill the apostles in the new testament and this brings us to lesson two the jews murdered the prophets apostles and jesus the jews murdered the apostles a prophet the prophets apostles and jesus Now, you're listening and you're saying, well, didn't you just say God the Father was responsible for Christ's sacrifice? He was, but these Jews were the ones who carried it out. These were the ones that God allowed them to fulfill their sinful desires, but in the process, furthered the plan of God. It's sort of that idea as you reflect on one of, the one of, or if not the wickedest people to ever live, Judas, and the uh, instrumental part he played in accomplishing human redemption. Have you ever thought about that, that Judas was one of the most responsible individuals for your salvation in terms of betraying Christ and turning him over, being the vessel that in God's hand would be used to see his son experience that betrayal and arrest that led to the cross? Think about the book of Acts to appreciate the wickedness of the Jews. Acts 4 and 5, Peter and John are arrested by the Jews. They're questioned and then they're flogged. Then in Acts chapter 7, Stephen's arrested by the Jews. He's questioned and stoned. Acts 9, 20, and 23, the Jews plotted to kill Paul. Acts 13, the the Jews drove Paul out of Antioch. Acts 17, the Jews chased Paul out of Thessalonica. Acts 21, Paul goes to Jerusalem where he's arrested in Jerusalem. Then he's rescued by Roman soldiers. So imagine that. Paul is in more danger from Jews than Gentiles. It's the Gentiles that save him. And so Jesus says in Luke eleven fifty, 50, the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world is going to be charged against this generation. Now that might sound a little unfair, like this generation is being blamed for everything that the previous generations did, but that's not quite what he means. Instead, he means that God has had enough of the jews sinfulness and this is the generation when the hammer drops referring to what 70 a.d when the romans come in they conquer jerusalem slaughter countless jews and destroy the temple and so this is jesus way of saying this is going to be charged or the payment is going to be made by this generation for the sins of all of the previous generations and jesus preached parables about this turn to matthew 22. This is the parable of the wedding feast. I'll go through these verses pretty quickly. Matthew 22. We'll start at verse 2. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent his servants. And who are these servants? Who are. These are the prophets in the old and the apostles in the new inviting the people to this wedding feast. He sends his servants to call those who are invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And then, verse 6 the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now, what's insulting enough to a king when you do what? Just refuse the invitation to go beyond that is is incredibly insulting to actually murder the messengers that are sent to invite you so how does the king respond in verse seven he's angry he sends his troops and he destroys those murderers and burn their city which again is referring to 70 a.d when the romans came in and conquered jerusalem now you say well, and now you're listening you're you're saying well pastor scott i thought you said this sermon was about christ's compassion for sinners This doesn't sound very compassionate when you keep talking about the romans coming and conquering jerusalem why is it compassionate for jesus to talk about this because he's talking about what has not happened yet giving these jews the opportunity to what repent i mean how how compassionate or gracious is it when a parent tells a child if you do this this is what's going to happen that is not unloving that is loving and that's what christ is doing here he's saying this is what's in store he didn't have to do that even this is a manifestation of his grace and mercy to say if you do not repent this is the judgment that's coming speaking of the prophets listen to this verse acts ten forty three. to jesus all the prophets bear witness let me say one more time to or about jesus all the prophets witness so in other words all the prophets are prophesying primarily about christ now if all the prophets are prophesying about christ and the jews murder those prophets who prophesied about christ then it only makes sense that when the christ comes that the jews do what murder him too and so the jews in jesus's day the ones who were charged or the generation that was charged were worse even than the jews in the old testament because the jews in the old testament murdered the prophets who prophesied about Christ, but the Jews in Jesus' day murdered the Christ himself. And this is what Stephen said, Acts 7.52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Stephen looked right at them and he said, you murdered all the prophets, Why would we expect anything different from you except that when the Messiah himself comes, you would betray and murder him too? And then they show just how murderous they are by doing what? By then murdering Stephen. Turn to Luke 23, verse 20. Luke 23, verse 20. Luke 23, verse 20. Pilate addresses them. Pilate addresses the Jews once more, saying or desiring to release Jesus. I were so familiar with this. I just want you to appreciate you are not familiar with this account. Consider what you're seeing here. Pilate is trying to release Jesus, but he can't because of what? Verse 21 they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. I mean, it's so incredible. You wouldn't believe it if it was not written here. The ungodly governor Pilate is trying to save Jesus, but the Jews will not let him. Three times he tried. Look at verse 22. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found... I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they, the Jews, were urgent or indignant, demanding with loud cries that Jesus should be crucified and their voices prevailed. I mean, it can almost bring you to tears to think about what we just read. That the Jews' long-awaited Messiah comes, he's in their midst, And not only did they reject him, they call out for his crucifixion. These Jews murdered the prophets throughout the Old Testament. They murdered Jesus in the Gospels after Jesus was resurrected and shown to be the Messiah if they had any doubts prior to the cross. Wouldn't Jesus' resurrection, which hundreds, at least 500 on one occasion were witnesses to, served as evidence to them that he was the messiah but no it didn't even after that after his resurrection they continued slaughtering the prophets and the apostles in the book of acts now here's why i'm telling you this we built up for this moment so that i hope you can appreciate what moved me all week considering how these jews have acted what would you expect jesus to say to them you are so stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious you should all be cast into hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth you are the wickedest group that has ever lived I cannot imagine worse people than you to have murdered the prophets, the apostles, and then called out for my crucifixion. I cannot believe that you were chosen to be God's people. That's what I would expect. Probably, cuz that's what I would say. <laughs> or maybe we would expect Jesus to quote one of the imprecatory psalms, like Psalm 35:6, "O oh, God, break the teeth in their mouths." or something like that. Instead, we read Luke 13:34 if you want to turn back there. Luke 13:34 Despite all this to see how Jesus spoke to them. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it how often would i have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing now i read this after reflecting on what the jews have done and will do which nobody knew better than christ himself and i think i cannot believe this i cannot believe that jesus could say this this must be one of the most dramatic demonstrations of compassion in all of scripture to think that jesus could say this to the jews knowing what they had done to his messengers would continue doing to his messengers and would do to him is almost unthinkable i mean if you were jesus and you knew jerusalem was the place that murdered your messengers and would murder you where you would be arrested beaten and killed what would you say to that city would you cry out to it like this and plead with it to come under your wings where it can be shown mercy and spared from judgment instead we see this loving and tender response from christ even at this late hour he wants to protect them he wants to nourish them he wants to Cherish these people so murderous and violent like a mother bird would protect her young chicks. Jesus had this compassion for sinners even with full knowledge of their sins. And this brings us to lesson three. The Jews' sins reveal Christ's compassion for sinners. The Jews' sins reveal Christ's compassion for sinners. We have these tremendous examples of god's mercy in the bible a few of them that come to mind for me and perhaps you'll think of others would be the forgiveness of the ninevites a terribly evil people who receive a very short message from jonah repent in sackcloth and ashes and are forgiven like just like that by god despite all of the horrible wickedness they had engaged in i think about god's forgiveness of manasseh one of the most Satanic figures in the entire Old Testament forgiven when he repented, and I say satanic in that I really cannot imagine an individual who acted more devilish than Manasseh sacrificing multiple sons (plural) of his to false gods. Someone who tried to live in in extraordinary opposition to God, to to act as wickedly as possible. Yet when he repented, God forgave him. Even Ahab, a, a name notorious with sin, when he humbled himself god noticed and told elijah to delay the judgment that should come against ahab because of his humility not even for repentance yet god still noticed that and i think wow what incredible compassion from god but i think that this account and maybe i say this with every account i read (laughs) this must become my favorite demonstration of christ's compassion in all of scripture because it would be one thing if Jesus said this to who? Who could he say this to and it would make sense? What if he said this to Noah? What if he said this to Daniel? What if he said this to Samuel? Or the 12 disciples, with the exception of Judas, who at least were trying to follow him, many who'd given up an amount to be with him? It would be one thing if Jesus said these words to those people, but he said it to Jews he knew were going to murder him. And here's what I want you to focus on. The Jews' sinfulness, when I was going through those passages, it is hard to believe. I cannot believe the Jews could act like that. I could not believe God's own people could murder the prophets, their own prophets God sent to them, and then the apostles, and then Christ. You have to marvel at the jews sinfulness but what must you marvel at even more god's compassion as hard as it is to believe that the jews could be that sinful it is even harder to believe that christ could show so much compassion for them and this is the verse that came to mind for me romans five twenty, where sin increased or sin abounded grace abounded all the more even more grace than the jews could send to trump i was reading all these verses about the jews murdering the prophets the apostles and christ and here's what you could have said you you could have and i cut some out you could have said pastor scott we get it do we have to look at more verses about the jews being so evil and murdering the prophets and apostles and how bad they were i want to be clear about why i thought that was so important by asking you to think about something isn't Jesus's compassion magnified for you when it is shown against the backdrop of such wickedness if it was Noah if it was Daniel if it was the disciples what would you say (laughs) big deal why shouldn't they be shown compassion they were godly people they weren't perfect but they were trying but to see compassion for these people And i want to share an illustration i know i shared this before with the life of manasseh because i think it's fairly similar manasseh's life is one that shows god's compassion for sinners and so do these jews now katie uh, my wife katie she's never been in uh really into expensive jewelry i mean it's one of the main reasons i married her (laughs) now even though She's never been into expensive jewelry. I know how it works. I know that you go into that jewelry shop, and when the salesman wants to make the jewels really stand out, really sparkle and shine for you, to make them the most attractive and the most beautiful, where does he put them? Wow. He puts them on that dark black velvet background, and then it just shows all the beauty of those diamonds and it's the Jews sinfulness it is their wickedness it is their rebellion it is all those verses about how evil they were that serves as that dark black velvet background for us to be able to see the beauty of Christ's heart now earlier you heard me say that the Romans conquered Jerusalem in 70 A.D And so you know that the Jews actually did not end up becoming the recipients of Christ's compassion that he had offered to them. We will talk next week about why that was the case. For now, I want to close with this. This is a very encouraging account. I tried, I wanted you to be able to see what I believe God showed me in these verses. I hoped you could Um, be given a window into the compassionate heart of christ like i believe i was this week It, it greatly blessed me to think of christ talking this way to such evil people and i hope that it blesses you too but i was reflecting on something this account it also carries something with it it carries a very very heavy burden with it believe it or not I mean you can look and you can say oh this is the lightest account oh god is so merciful he's so gracious even to these terribly even people you almost walk out of here lighter you know floating on a cloud just reflecting on god's mercy and grace and forgiveness and i would say there is a burden that you must appreciate with this account because when you see christ's heart for the jews you see that nobody could ever be what beyond that compassion basically i would say the burden is this you have no excuse i don't know what you thought when you came in here today i don't know how you felt i don't know what thoughts you have about the lord when I talked at the beginning of the sermon about viewing God one-dimensionally, I don't know if you came in here viewing God one-dimensionally as, as possibly just that very severe God who wants nothing more than to, to judge you and rain down fire from heaven like he did on Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe you kind of view God like that, like the disciples seemed to do when they wanted that fire rain down on that Samaritan town. But here's what I t- I'm telling you and just... In fact, just set everything else down. Look at me. Don't look anywhere else. Just give me your attention. After listening to what I shared with you, you may never say, God cannot forgive me. You can never say, God could never love me after what I have done. You can never say, my past sins have turned God against me. You can never say my history of being hostile toward God has made him hostile toward me. You can never say he's done with me. He wants nothing to do with me because of what I've done. You can never say I have done too much for God to ever have compassion for me because you have seen the compassion that he still held for the Jews that he knew would crucify him. And if Christ can have compassion on the Jews in his day, who can't he have compassion for? What could you possibly do that would ever approach what the Jews did? If the Jews' past and even future sins did not turn Christ against them, which I cannot believe, if he could still say to them, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? It is an impossibility that you could ever do something that would prevent the Lord from having compassion toward you. If you have lived in rebellion to God, or you believe you have done things that would prevent him from loving you or wanting a relationship with you, you need to go back to these verses. You need to go back and see what jesus said to these jews and think about how they treated him and then the compassion that he still felt for them because really as long as we are still taking breaths there's still hope as long as you are still alive there's still hope for you that you would return that you would turn to the lord and that he would gather you under his wings If you have any questions about anything that i shared this morning or there's any doubt in your mind associated with these truths i would consider it a privilege to be able to speak with you father we thank you for the compassionate heart of christ towards sinners such a beautiful demonstration in these verses to see jesus speak to people who would act this way i just hope that point was driven home lord if there's nothing else that they take from this morning than just to see jesus speak to people who would act that way then i pray that they would bring that with them that each heart would remember that lord that nobody would ever feel as though they're too far from god or that there's uh, any behavior or actions they've engaged in or done that would prevent them from having a relationship you sh- with you should they repent and turn to you lord i thank you for these truths i thank you for christ the savior he is his willingness to bring us under his wings and to protect us from the judgment of wrath that's against us And I pray, I don't know whether I did justice to these verses this morning, Lord, but I do pray that Christ's compassionate heart would be revealed to each of us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.